In our last episode, I questioned whether the police were complicit in supporting one version of events that ultimately led to the shooting death of Richard Adderson over other possible scenarios. While I believe the Adderson homicide did in fact stem from a road rage incident, I'm also convinced that it was more involved than just that. In the next few episodes, we'll begin to examine what we do know about the police investigation. But both the New York State Police and New Hampshire State Police have been extremely resistant in divulging much about the investigation. To date, the New York State Police have denied my initial Freedom of Information Law, or FOIL, request, asserting, quote, The records I seek concern an ongoing investigation. These are records which were compiled for law enforcement purposes and which, if disclosed, would interfere with a law enforcement investigation, end quote. So I appealed and argued that I understood releasing some of the information may in fact impede their ongoing investigation of 21 years. I mean, I do understand that withholding information and evidence is a necessary tactic employed by detectives and investigators. I was just hoping to get some of the more mundane details from a report. I put in FOIL requests before on other cases and have been given heavily redacted incident reports and detective reports. There was one report where everything on the sheet of paper had been blacked out except for the name of the form on top. I get it. But the New York State Police, again, hid behind the law enforcement exemption and replied to my appeal. To the extent that the homicide of Richard H. Adderson is still active and ongoing, the records you seek, which were compiled for law enforcement purposes, are records which, if disclosed, would interfere with this investigation. I still have a hard time imagining the lieutenant colonel who typed up that response, keeping a straight face while he presumably cut and pasted examples of case law used to deny my FOIL appeal. And why might he find it funny? Well, for starters, in my request, I'd reference the fact that 21 years earlier, the New York State Police had granted a certain amount of access to the media organizations that produced America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries. And again, that was 21 years ago when the case was still relatively fresh and the chances of catching the killer were far greater back then than they are today. I mean, I've always heard that for homicide detectives, the clock starts ticking the moment they are called. Their chance of solving a murder is cut in half if they don't get a lead within the first 48 hours. So why would they deny my request? Had the New York State Police concluded, in retrospect, of course, that releasing that information to the media back in 1997 and 1998 had indeed interfered with their investigation? Well, it doesn't seem very likely because the Poughkeepsie Journal had published a story on the 20th anniversary of Richard's death in 2017. And the supervisor of the New York State Troopers Barracks, responsible for that particular investigation, seemed very open to speaking with the newspaper's reporter. And yet, 
when I visited that same barracks a little more than a year later, I was met with the same frustrating response to all of my questions. You know we can't comment on that. I guess the current investigator who had inherited Richard's case and his supervisor didn't much appreciate that I had surprised them by admitting that I, too, am a law enforcement officer who just loves true crime and podcasts. From the outskirts of New York City, Slim Turkey is pseudonymously hosted by Lee Purchase, with the occasional cluck from the Yonkers love chicken himself, Mr. Slim Turkey. Yes, I am a police officer, but I'm not employed by the department tasked with investigating Richard Adderson's homicide, nor am I producing this series in any official capacity. I've just always been fascinated by true crime stories, and that fascination undoubtedly led me to my calling as a police officer. And then when a friend introduced me to podcasts earlier this year, I was hooked. But I choose to disclose that information because I don't want there to be any doubt that this series is about Richard Adderson. It's not about me. And I felt the longer I withheld that fact, the more it could detract from Richard's own story and from the ultimate goal of exposing his killer. I hope revealing now that I am an officer will nip that in the bud. In the next few episodes, we'll begin discussing the police investigation because there's so much to cover. In this first episode, I'll try to focus on how information and evidence in this case has been monopolized by the New York State Police and, to a lesser extent, by the New Hampshire State Police. A little later in the episode, Mr. Slim Turkey will join me to discuss this. Admittedly, the turkey and I have a habit of getting off track, but I will bring it full circle in the end. Then, in our next episode, we'll dig deeper into whether there was anything nefarious going on during the investigation, or maybe it just appears that way. Before we dive in, let's do a quick review of some key details mentioned in previous episodes. And in case you haven't yet listened to those first three episodes in this series, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to those episodes first. This episode will make a lot more sense once you do. Now, as I mentioned before, the New York State Police revealed that Adderson had provided a physical description of his killer and of his late model green Jeep Cherokee. He even identified a New Hampshire license plate. However, key pieces of Richard Adderson's 911 call were never released, including any further description of that New Hampshire license plate. Interestingly, New Hampshire plates could easily have been mistaken for other states' license plates, so it would be entirely plausible for Adderson, or anyone else for that matter, to confuse one plate for another. And yet, just five days after his murder, New York State Police had landed in Manchester, New Hampshire, to investigate that homicide. Two months after that, a 
law firm in Manchester, actually the largest full-service law firm in the state of New Hampshire, was hired by an unknown client to, quote, make inquiries into the Adderson investigation. Now, all of this information was sporadically released by the New York State Police over the course of about a year and a half. And most notably, it was released in New Hampshire, exactly where the homicide did not occur. But things get even more interesting. A little over a year after Richard Adderson's murder, New York State Police revealed that Adderson stated his killer identified himself as a cop, a COP. And to me, that's incredibly telling. And I'll get to why in a little bit during my interview with Slim Turkey. But they were also quick to point out that anyone can claim to be a police officer, which is an entirely fair point. But then why bring it up to the public if you're not sure? And then police also revealed that Adderson had been shot with a 40 caliber handgun, which in 1997 was the same caliber firearm used by at least one New Hampshire police department. So are you confused yet? Yeah, so was I when I first began researching Richard's case. So many of the details of the incident and the investigation just didn't make sense to me. And the police have been extremely stingy in sharing whatever information they've been able to gather and collect, at least officially. As I alluded to before, police will normally withhold specific details about a crime that only the perpetrator would know. It's good, sound police work, and it's a well-regarded tactic that can lead investigators to a suspect who's in possession of previously unreleased and non-public information, as it's likely that suspect either committed the crime himself or knows who did. So, for example, if police are interrogating a potential murder suspect who, during the course of the questioning, inadvertently reveals that the victim had been shot with a 9mm handgun, which had never been made public, then they probably got their man. Or at least they're very close. But I hadn't asked for such specific details of the Richard Anderson homicide and investigation. I simply filed a request asking for whatever the New York State Police might be willing to disclose. I cast a wide net requesting copies of the incident report transcribed 911 calls, the coroner's report, and the investigating detective's report, hoping that it might yield some details of the case. Before I received an official response, I was invited to the police's Troop K barracks in Wappingers Falls, New York, where I met with the lead investigator and his supervisor. It all began cordially enough, even though I was told I wouldn't be able to record any of our conversations on my portable microphone, although they surprisingly didn't seem that concerned with my cell phone. The two investigators initially seemed just as interested in learning what I knew about the case as I did with them. We spoke for a couple of minutes before I revealed, as a professional courtesy, that I was a police officer. It immediately changed the dynamic of the conversation, and I seemingly lost any chance of learning anything new about the case. But I pressed on for a couple of more minutes, and in retrospect, I'm glad I did. While I wouldn't learn any more specifics about the case itself, I did get a better sense of how the investigation was being handled. My final questions were one to which I already knew the answers. So when I heard the supervisor tell me, you know we can't comment on that. 
I was surprised, especially because her predecessor had revealed that same information to the New Hampshire media 20 years earlier. I wasn't asking any new questions. I had even attempted to assure them on several occasions that I was simply hoping to solicit the public's assistance in solving this very solvable crime. In fact, Captain Fred Shale, the New York State Police commander for Southern Dutchess County at the time of Richard's homicide, stated, I'd say there's a good likelihood of catching this guy. The victim gave a good description. The inception of this podcast was based on appealing to those people who might know something, but who were unwilling to speak with the police. However, the two investigators before me had already turned distrustful, and the feelings were mutual. The interview was over before it even began, but I walked out of the barracks with a better understanding that if I was going to learn anything about this case... It definitely wasn't coming from the New York State Troopers. I've made several requests called the Freedom of Information Law or FOIL in New York and Right to Know in New Hampshire from both departments. By the way, in case you're wondering what these requests involve, here's a brief summary. Although the specifics vary from one state to the next, it's written into state laws across the country that citizens have the right to know how their governments operate, including details of a police investigation. Of course, there are certain exemptions in place to ensure that nothing is released that could possibly compromise an ongoing investigation. At the same time, there can be stiff penalties for government agencies that do not comply with reasonable requests. Back to Richard's case, as mentioned earlier, one request I made about this case to the New York State Police netted absolutely nothing. It makes you wonder. Does everything in their case file require secrecy? What about all the information that they already revealed? That's the monopolization of information that makes me wonder about their intentions. I've also filed requests from four police departments about what type of weapons their officers had been issued at the time of Richard's death in 1997. The Hillsborough County Sheriff, which serves the Manchester, New Hampshire area, replied immediately with their information. They had been issued 9mm firearms. The Manchester Police Department were also very helpful in providing information. They were issued 40 caliber service weapons at the time. But the New Hampshire State Police hadn't been all that helpful. To date, they have yet to produce any relevant information based on my request to know what weapon system the department had employed in 1997. My official request was dated July 26, 2018. They have since requested two extensions, one for 30 days and the next for 25 days. And when they finally sent me some information about their service weapons, it was from two separate dates. 1978 and 2018. 
Curiously, they had failed to find any responsive records in between. Was this a stall tactic? Even if you give them the benefit of the doubt and don't assume that it was, you still have to wonder, are they really that inept that they can't respond within a reasonable amount of time or with any pertinent information? Or is something else going on here? Inquiring minds want to know. I want to know. I've since tasked them with another request about their connection to the Richard Adderson investigation. According to two retired cops from that same department who I have personally spoken with, the New Hampshire State Police did indeed keep records of their involvement with the New York State Police in the investigation. Let's wait and see whether they'll be able to find those records. I'm expecting a response sometime this month, and I'll surely let you know what they reveal. And finally, I sent another FOIL request to the New York State Troopers on August 13th, 2018, asking them which weapon systems they used in 1997. Their department responded that I should receive a response by February 4th, 2019. Yes, a full six-month wait. We have Mr. Slim Turkey in the studio again this week. Turkey, how you doing? Doing good. How are you? I'm great. This week, we're focusing on the police investigation in the Richard Adderson homicide. I have many questions about how the police conducted that initial investigation. I also have some concerns about who the suspect may have been and how that could have possibly influenced their investigation. You and I had been talking about the practice of withholding information from the general public and how it was a legitimate investigative tactic. But I said that I thought that there was a little more to it than that. I was recently in touch with a retired law enforcement officer who argued that if the New York State Police had attempted a cover-up back in 1997 and beyond, there would be more than one whistleblower to expose a wrongdoing. And I just don't believe that, because there were many different factors at the time which made it more difficult to come forward. Although it's still difficult today in 2018, it was much more difficult to give up everything and become a whistleblower back in 1997. Now, what were you saying? Policing, it was always a community. It was a closed community that they always stayed within themselves. There was no social media. Cops. Where the, yeah, there was no Twitter for police departments now, which they have. There was no social media presence for police at this point now. So 97, think about it. They don't have to say anything. All no. they have to do is just have a firm wall, the blue wall. The blue with, wall of silence. But as long as everyone stayed behind that blue wall, they were good. They would protect their own. Now, in this age of social media and where everyone has a voice, now they can, this, that blue wall of silence is only as good as the people who stay behind it. So I will relate it to my own experience. I became a police officer in the early 2000s. And the biggest thing that I've seen change the police department 
are phones and of a smartphone that could record video. Those beginning smartphones. I don't even know if, um, did you necessarily have to have a smartphone to record video? No, I mean, you had a flip phone, you could record video, but it wouldn't be good. But You'd it have would, to be up close. Right, but it would still show you what happened. Exactly. And that was after I had come on the job. And like I said, I came on in the early 2000s. So in 1997, they didn't have that problem. There weren't any phones. Obviously, there were video recorders, but you've seen some of these video recorders that are bricks, humongous bricks, not easy to transport, and you can't keep them in your pocket. So policing definitely changed with the advent of... Smartphones. With smartphones or phones in general that yep. could record, mm -hmm. even if they were pixelated. If you could make a case that a police officer or... Let's not even talk about a police officer. If someone was doing something and it was recorded, that yeah. person was fucked. Yeah, that, were, you were, that phone was now a first eyewitness. Exactly. And then with the launch of social media where then you could post that and people would watch it and it had the potential of going viral, that changed policing as well. Yep. But I really think that the beginning of a real change in policing happened as a result of the cell phone and have that option of recording at your fingertips because you could dig into your pocket and press a hey. button and record. Yep. But they didn't have that in 1997. That's where I believe the blue wall of silence had its day, right? Much stronger. Now because I am pro police officer. My brother's one. You are one. I do believe that most cops do the best interest of the community. Absolutely. I do We know, definitely get a bad rap. We definitely get a bad rap. What I would say is that there are always bad apples in the in the bunch. You can never do anything that's going to deter them from doing whatever they're going to do, but they will be there. But at this point now what I would say is what are we what, actually what are we trying to say? <laughs> most police officers are good people. Yeah. But you will always find... Bad apples in the bunch. The yes. rotten apple. Yeah. So I don't want to give anybody the impression that we are anti-cop. I also would make a distinction. If, this, if the killer of Richard Adderson turned out to be a cop, which I believe that he is or was, then in my mind, he's not a cop. There's a difference between being a police officer and a cop, right? When you're a cop, you live the life. You're doing right. When what this person did, they went against being the cop. They were just someone who had a gun and a badge. That was it. Am I wrong? So police officers generally an entry level rank of law enforcement, but the term cop represents more of an attitude, a feeling, an association, especially to cops. The forty to fifty year old suspect that Richard Adderson described to the nine one one operator didn't identify himself as a police officer to Richard Adderson. He said, I'm a cop. And that has always been highlighted in every report that I've read to make me believe that he identified himself as a COP, as a cop, which, at least in my department, could mean any rank, whether you're a police officer, whether you're a lieutenant, whether you're a chief, that person will still say, I'm a cop. And they will maintain that they're still a cop 
to their department. Bringing it back to Richard Adderson, the suspect identified himself as a cop. He's not stating his rank. He's saying... I lived the life. See, as a layman, I did not know that. I but, would not know the difference between... I did not know that there was a difference between police officer and cop. It's a rank. But to me, police officer and cop are interchangeable. But I know, having the experience of working in a police department, there are people who would never say that they were a police officer. And I think that's important because I think that the person who shot Richard Adderson, who referred to himself as a cop. The fact that they identified themselves as a cop versus a police officer is... Because I, which, the layman, as to like what I said to you before, I would just say I'm a police officer. You would not know. All right, that doesn't mean he's a cop. When he defines himself as a cop, means he's he, he's lived a life. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that that is the distinction which makes me believe that this person was a law enforcement officer, coupled with the fact that he was carrying a 40 caliber handgun just reinforces it. So can I just throw a wrinkle? Yeah. Could it be a corrections officer as well? Absolutely. You must consider that it, that this person came from a police department, but also consider officers of other jurisdictions, like railroad police, yeah, you know, Amtrak, yeah, DEP, yeah. Department of Environmental Protection, Protection has police, campus police, post, the postal police. Well, there was at least one police department in New Hampshire at the time that had been issued 40 caliber handguns, and that was the Manchester Police Department. The New Hampshire State Police have yet to reply to my... FOIL? They call it a right to know. The right to know in New RTK? Hampshire. RTK? RTK. Fucking acronyms in 2018. So I actually hit them with that right to know request, which took over two months to produce these nine pages that I have in front of me right now, which cost $9. They charge a dollar a page. Nine pages of nothing? Nine pages of nothing. And I said specifically, I would like for you to provide me information which records the transition of your department from revolvers to semi-automatic handguns. They send me records from 1978. So it goes from 1978, when the department was using 38 caliber or 357, to, to 2018, when at that point, they were using 45 caliber handguns, Smith & Wessons. So 40 years later, but there's nothing, they have no records in between. So they just went from 38 to 45 then? Well, over the course of 40 years. What did I mean? They went from 38 in 1978 in 2018. Oh, we're just right. But they didn't, point. listen, they didn't switch over to 45 calibers. Directly. 45 caliber handguns in 2018. Okay. So I feel like they're avoiding the specific information that I requested. They're full of shit. It's a runaround. And the crazy thing is... It's not asking a For very much. difficult question. Yeah. I'm not asking you to provide the records of however the New York, the New Hampshire State Police. Were you using 40 calibers, state-issued 40 calibers to your police officer, yes or no? Why is that difficult? 
I can't recall exactly what I said, but we were talking about where we ended up in terms of oh, shit. I forgot. Junk turkey, gobble. So, Mr. Slim Turkey, thank you for being in the studio today. Thank you for having me. I'll see you uh, next week when we continue this conversation about the police investigation and whether or not they were complicit, either complicit or just outright covering up a potential homicide. Turkey time, paradigm, turkey time, standing like the weather is It really does seem that something is up here. Even when you acknowledge that it's a legitimate tactic to withhold information during an investigation, you have to wonder if there's some sort of cover-up going on here. Now, I'm the first to admit that police definitely get a bad rap at times. And sometimes the blue wall of silence is an undeserved accusation. Even though there can be a few bad apples in any barrel, I just want to reiterate what we said before. This is not an anti-cop podcast. If Richard's killer was in fact a cop, then he didn't live up to the dignity and integrity and honor that go along with our profession. The vast majority of men and women in law enforcement are truly trustworthy and respectable people. I know that personally and witness it day in and day out. That being said, by withholding seemingly harmless information, I've begun to question the New York State Police's motives. I suspect the New York and possibly New Hampshire State Police are playing games. I believe they've either been complicit in hiding information or possibly worse. Why am I convinced of that? Well, that's another story for another day. For now, I want to thank you for listening to the show. I also want to explain that the research involved for this series has been a bit more complicated than I had originally planned. I wanted to release an episode every two weeks, but I'm going to start releasing episodes every three weeks. So check back for episode five, Something's Fishy and Fishkill, in three weeks' time. And if you like the show, please fatten up this turkey with some positive reviews on iTunes and find us on Facebook Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll be running some free giveaways for Slim Turkey t-shirts. And definitely check out our website at slimturkey.com if you have any questions, comments, or any information about this case. Maybe you'd even like to appear on the show to give your opinion of events. We'd love to hear from you. So for now, I'm Lee Purchase, and this is Slim Turkey. (laughs) 